2 Samuel this morning, chapter number 9. 2 Samuel chapter number 9. Now, uh, I was having a conversation with some men in the hallway, and, and uh, Brother Ernie was telling me how it feels like Christmas time to him already, and man, he's been singing Christmas songs since Thanksgiving, and I told him, I'd just be honest with you, it doesn't feel like Christmas is all that close yet. I know the decorations have been up in Walmart since about early August, but I just don't feel like uh, it's Christmas time yet. Maybe the fact that we've had 80 degree days and I've been in shorts and a t-shirt outside has had something to do with that, but I just don't feel like it's Christmas time yet. So I'm going to do my very best to preach you a Christmas message from a guy that's not in a very Christmassy mood quite yet. And I really don't mean to uh, make light of Christmas or anything like that, but and the whole message won't be focused on Christmas, but it will have at least a Christmas theme in it. Now, it's this time of year we start seeing the Christmas movies come on TV. We begin to, you know, the Hallmark movies are flooding my Hulu account. and uh, uh, But... It's this time of year that, that we begin to see all that, and then every once in a while in the evening, we'll see maybe a claymation, you know, like the good ones, the Frosty the Snowmans, and the original Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and, and those are great, and we hear of all these stories, and this year, obviously, The Grinch is pretty prevalent, as they just released a new movie. I think Grana and Paul took uh, uh, almost all the grandkids, I think they only left two grandkids at home. Uh, the other day to go see that. So I think they had four in the theater. And uh, my dad was feeling quite grinchy when he got home, actually, as a pretty rough experience from what he was saying. But, but it's these stories that kind of come back to us this time of year, every year. And whether you're much of a reader or not, probably one of the most famous stories that we're all familiar with is called A Christmas Carol. It was written by Charles Dickens, and certainly he's quite famous. And we all know the story, and I'll be honest with you, I've never read the entire book, but I have read a page of it, so I can say I read the book. And uh, I, I've seen uh, several different movies and several different versions of that. But if I were to ask you this morning to name one person in the, in the Christmas Carol story, who would you say? Scrooge. I think that's most everybody would say that. Now, can everybody give me like a second person? Can anybody tell me a second person? Tiny Tim. You know what's so funny about that though? Is Tiny Tim is a very small character in the story. <laughs> small. Get it? <laughs> but he really doesn't have a large part in the story. The in fact, you could even say that uh, Scrooge's nephew Fred has more of a role in the story. You could certainly say that Tiny Tim's father, Bob Cratchit, has a larger uh, part in the story. But for some reason, Tiny Tim sticks out to us as a very memorable character. Because I think in some way or another, we all sympathize with Tiny Tim. And I know that probably one of the hardest lines in the whole book to read or in the story to hear is when Scrooge is so greedy and just so just an evil man early on in the story. And he says, well, if he's going to die, he better just do it so he can decrease the surplus population. And when you hear that line, your heart begins to break because you think, how could anybody be so mean and so insensitive to what, what Tiny Tim has gone through in life? Now, maybe you have never had a child with a disability like that, but in some way or another... We feel very bad for the family of Tiny Tim. We feel bad for Tiny Tim. Well, this morning I'm going to preach to you a message entitled, God's Heart for the Tiny Tims of the World. God's Heart for the Tiny Tims of the World. Verse number 1 of chapter number 9, the Bible says, And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul? that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. 
And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son, which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, and the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then king David sent, and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, say that a couple times fast. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was coming to David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertained to Saul and to all his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, According to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, He shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants unto Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table and was lame on both his feet. In our passage this morning, we're introduced to a young man by the name of Mephibosheth. And if you were to just read this passage of scripture, you would certainly feel bad for Mephibosheth, as the Bible says, that he is lame on his feet. If you understand that the Bible kind of read in whole gives you much more context than that, though. In fact, in chapter 4 of verse number 4, the Bible tells us how this plight had beset Mephibosheth. Now, we don't really know much from this chapter, but earlier in the book, the Bible tells us exactly what happened to him. This is about as sad a story as I can imagine. See, one day his grandfather Saul, King Saul, and his father Jonathan were off at battle at Mount Gilboa. The Bible tells us that day that Jonathan and Saul were both killed in battle. Looking over Mephibosheth at just five years old was a nurse as his father and his grandfather were off at war. Once the news returned to this nurse that both Jonathan and Saul had died, she became concerned for Mephibosheth because in this day it was quite customary for a new king to take the throne and kill all of the descendants of the previous king so that, that those children might not be a threat to claim the throne. She became concerned for his life. She worried that the new king might do what was customary in the day and so she began to flee with Mephibosheth just five years old. In her terror and in her hurry, she dropped Mephibosheth. The Bible tells us it was because of this accident that he lost the use in both of his legs. The Bible tells us that on one day, this young man not only lost his grandfather and lost his father, but he also lost the ability to walk. It's a pretty sad story, isn't it? And yet now we see in the story that David is calling for him. He's looking for him to display kindness that I believe came directly from the heart of God. You see, the Bible tells us in two different places, both in the Old and New Testament, that David was a man after God's own heart. And yet, if I were to ask you, what story do you think of when you think of David? We would probably think of one of two 
Certainly David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba. Most of the time, men remember us for our greatest successes and our greatest failures. But there's so much more to the story of David. Neither him slaying the giant or sleeping with Bathsheba do I believe display the heart of God in David's life. I think one of them was certainly valiant and courageous, and I think one of them was certainly sinful and wicked. But neither one of them do we see God's heart like we do in this story. He was a man after God's own heart, and he displays a heart of God for the tiny Tims of the world in this passage. This morning, let us study this. Number one, we'll see in the passage that there is an inquiry Verse number one, the Bible tells us that David sought out to seek for Mephibosheth. He asks in verse number one and said, Is there yet any that is left in the house of Saul that I may show kindness, show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? You see, there's a search. I think it's interesting that uh, Mephibosheth was not looking for David, but yet David was looking for Mephibosheth. You say, how does that matter? Well, it matters because Mephibosheth was actually trying to hide from David. It matters because at the very first word of that uh, of his father and his grandfather's death, the nurse fleed from the future king's presence. He was hiding, and yet the king sought him out. Did you know that there has never been a man that seeks after God apart from God first seeking after him? If you'll recall the story in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. If you'll remember, they had kind of an appointment to walk with God in the cool of the day, every day in the garden. And yet the Bible tells us that when they sinned and they had this new knowledge that there was right and wrong in the world and they had done wrong and gone against God's commandment. If you'll remember, their first reaction was not to meet God happily. Y'all remember what they did? When they realized that they were naked, they hid themselves. Why do we do that? It's because the Bible teaches us that we always run from God. Even Jesus said it like this, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Did you know the Bible also teaches us for All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none that doeth good. There is none that seeketh after God. Apart from our heavenly king coming and seeking after us and placing himself on a cruel cross for our sins, we would have no hope of salvation. But praise God, like David, God sought after the cripples of this world and died for them to show them kindness. Not only is there a search, but you'll notice that there is a criteria here. The Bible tells us here that the only requirement was that he be a son of Jonathan. There was no, uh, I think it's interesting that there were no other requirements. In other words, he didn't know John, uh, he didn't know Mephibosheth. Not all the time can you judge a son or a father by their son. Have you ever known a father that you see is a good dad and he's a good man and then you look at their kids and they're like, man, those are some bratty. Don't think of my children here. Let's think of, try to go think of someone else. But have you ever known that where it's like, how did you raise these brats, these hoodlums? How did you do that? I don't understand. Well, certainly you would say maybe Jonathan would have been a good dad. But remember, Mephibosheth lost his dad at five years old. And and David knows nothing of Mephibosheth. Did you know Mephibosheth could have been a bad person? He could have been a real, real uh, hell raiser. He could have been a guy that nobody wanted to be around. He could have been a crook. He could have been a swindler. And yet David doesn't set up any other requirements for this kindness. All he says is... Is there a son of Jonathan that I can display kindness on? No other requirements but that he be a son of Jonathan. Did you know that the only uniting fact between all of us in this room this morning is that we all share a common ancestry? I was reading an article last night uh, published by the Associated Press. I was actually reading it on Fox News' website 
But in 2006, a study was done. And in fact, these uh, uh, mathematicians and these statisticians and even uh, one uh, uh, professor at Yale, I believe it was, they had come together and they had done math over the course of history. And they said that we all have a common ancestor within the last 10,000 years of the earth being here. Now, I've, I think that's pretty interesting because most of them think that the earth is a bajillion years old. And so the fact that we all have a common ancestor within the last 10,000 years actually lines up biblically. We all, we all have Adam as our great, 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 great. We'd be here all day and we got a new clock. It's very apparent that I'm running out of time. So, uh, uh, I mean, we all have Adam as our great granddaddy. And it doesn't matter where you come from or, you know, they have these uh, ancestry kits now. You can just send me $65 and I can tell you where you come from. Uh, and it'd be probably just as accurate. But, but we all have one thing in common this morning, and that is we all are descendants of Adam. And did you know when Christ came to this world, he did not say, I've come to seek and to save the best of you. I've come to seek and to save only those that are righteous. In fact, he came to this earth and he says, those that behold need no physician. I have come for the sick. He says, I came for those that were hurting. Jesus did not set any requirements upon the kindness that he extended to mankind other than we be a descendant of Adam. The Bible tells us, for as by sin, for as by one man sin entered into the world, and so death by sin, so death passed upon all men. Did you know the Bible also says, for in Adam all shall die, but in Christ all shall live. Aren't you thankful that the kindness of our Lord was not based upon uh, what we could do or what we had to offer Him. It was based upon His grace and mercy undeserved. There is a search and there is a criteria. I want you to see thirdly, in this inquiry that David set out, there was an answer that returned to him. This answer is found in verse number four. The question was, is there anyone that I can show kindness to, a descendant of Saul, a descendant of uh, uh, Jonathan? In verse number four, the Bible says, the king said unto him, where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Now, Lodabar is a unique name. The word lo means no. Dabar means thing. The town is literally named nothing. In fact, if you were to take the name and actually for what it meant, it meant the land of nothing. And it makes sense, right? News comes to you that, that uh, the new king might be pursuing this child. Have you ever seen people that uh, go off the grid and they, they go to these desolate places and they try to make it to where they can survive without any... This is what they were doing. They were trying to get Mephibosheth off the grid. I mean, they, didn't, they couldn't have uh, the king finding him, so they went literally to the middle of nowhere. And then you find out that he's staying in the house of a man by the name of Machir. You see, it's uncustomary for a, a prince to require the service of someone else. I mean, this guy should have an inheritance. This guy should be heralded by the nation. And yet he's being taken care of by someone else in the middle of nowhere. And David says, is there someone that I can show kindness to? By the way, Mephibosheth had nothing to offer David. He had no gifts. He had no counsel. He had no wisdom that David sought after. He did not think to himself, well, once I get Mephibosheth here, then we can really unite the nation. Did you know at this time, the reason David is seeking out Mephibosheth is because uh, uh, his kingdom now has grown exponentially. And for the first time in his reign, he is finally has peace on all sides. And now he seeks after Mephibosheth to show him this kindness. Mephibosheth cannot bring some type of uh, army general knowledge or expertise. Mephibosheth offers to David nothing. And David offered to Mephibosheth everything. 
The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace are you saved. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And probably the most uh, uh, common religion in the world is some type of philosophy that says, if you work hard enough, you can get to heaven. And you can have all the religions, you can throw them all in the same basket. They all say the same thing. If you do enough good, God will look down upon you and smile. The Bible says that's just simply not the case. We have nothing to offer our king. We cannot do anything for him. In fact, the Bible says, who hath given counsel to the Lord? There is nothing, no, not a person in here that that can impress God with the talents you have or the abilities that you have or the expertise that you have. God's gift of salvation is offered freely and entirely based upon his kindness to you, not about your kindness towards him. You see, there's an inquiry given. I want you to notice, uh, secondly, the intention Once he seeks out Mephibosheth and finds out that there is in fact someone of Saul's lineage of Jonathan's sons that he could show kindness to, there is an intention behind it. I want you to see that intention was to show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, sometimes it's hard to piece together all of the stories of the Bible, but in fact, there was a promise made between Jonathan and David... That one day when David, by the way, Jonathan would have been the rightful heir to the throne, but Jonathan saw something in David that no one else saw, not even King Saul. And he knew that one day David would be the king of Israel. And so this covenant was made between Jonathan and David. Remember, they're very close. They're as good of friends as I believe there are in all the Bible. And, And this covenant is made, and the covenant is essentially... David, when you're the king, I want you to take care of not only me, but I want you to take care of my family. And so what we have here is David simply keeping his promise. I read the story of Genesis, uh, of the fall of man, and I see that at the very onset, as soon as man messed up, God had a plan to fix it. The other day, my... My daughters were playing around, and sometimes dad teaches them bad habits. Um, I think they are inherited through their mother's genes, but I teach them and kind of reinforce them. But the other day I was uh, in the house, and Caitlin was jumping off the end of the bed, and uh, uh, she was taking pillows and just swinging them at the lamp or at the ceiling fan. And obviously, we all know that's probably a recipe for disaster, and certainly that something kind of happened. I was in the living room studying my Bible, I'm sure. I'm sure that's what I was doing. And I hear an awful crash. I go in to find that uh, the little dangly things, you know, the strings that you pull, kind of had like a little metal weight on the end of it. Once she hit that with the pillow, that weight went up, collided with the glass little uh, cones or whatever. I, mean, I don't know what they are, but with the, the little cones that go over the lights there. And, and this glass little shade thing broke. And Caitlin came to me and said, Daddy, what do we do? And, I, and, I, and I'm thinking, I don't know. I guess we're just going to be shadeless. I, I, don't, I don't know. And so I looked at it, and it, it pretty much broke in, in two big pieces, the main part and then one smaller part. And, and so I, I, I looked at her, and I, I looked at Amy, and I go, I think I can fix this. And so I went into the, the drawer that every household has, you know, the organizational drawer is what we call it at our house. And there I had some adhesive. It was liquid nail. It was 100% silicone. And I thought, that's good. It'll be clear. You can't even notice it. And so I, I uh, opened that and I, I, sure enough, I put some in the cracks and I pieced it together. And I did that on both the inside and the outside. And sure enough, I mean, surprisingly, you can barely even notice that anything ever happened. And that's pretty good for me. I'm not the most mechanical kind of guy. And so I put it up there and sure enough, guess what? 
Dad is now known as the fixer. You see, when our girls have a problem, they come to Dad. In the Garden of Eden, what took place is Adam and Eve offered to God a problem that was broken. God had made creation and He said, it is very good. And what we did, man did, we destroyed and broke that great creation. And we held up in two different hands a broken world. And God says, I'll fix it. And what he did that day is they had sewn together for themselves fig leaves to cover themselves. And and God said, that's not going to be sufficient for this. And so he took a, a lamb and he slayed that lamb and he made of them of that lamb coats for them to cover themselves. But, but the, the meaning is so much deeper than this because the, the blood that was shed gave them forgiveness. And it was a picture of one day, as John said, the lamb of God that would come and take away the sins of the world. You see, God had a plan and he made a promise in Genesis chapter number three that he would keep that plan. Aren't you glad that God keeps his promises? Not only did he keep his promise, but really he was doing it to honor a person. David was honoring the memory of his friend. In fact, the Bible tells us they were so close that it was as if their souls had become one. It was as if Jonathan's soul was David's soul. In fact, the Bible tells us that the love between Jonathan and David surpassed for David even the love of any woman he had ever known. They loved each other so deeply. Obviously, given the opportunity to kind of remember his friend Jonathan and kind of show kindness was a privilege for David. Isn't it nice to do nice things for friends? I love doing nice things for friends. And I think that David was honoring Jonathan by these actions. But there was nothing easy about the decision that he made. You understand that, right? The king has all sorts of things to worry about. The king kind of judges his nation. The king makes plans to go to war. The king has to make sure that in times of crisis, like in famine, that the nation is well fed. I mean, the king has a lot on his plate. And by inviting Mephibosheth to sit at his table every evening, he was inviting a problem. You see, Mephibosheth was crippled. He would have required great, great care. Not only that, but there was always the risk that somewhere Mephibosheth might get the idea, well, this is my throne. And there was always uh, maybe a little bit of a concern that there could be an uprising against David. I mean, this was not just an easy thing like, oh yeah, I have plenty of food and I have an extra seat at the table anyway. Sure, Mephibosheth, come on in. I mean, this was, had to be thought out thoroughly. And yet David did it not for Mephibosheth's sake. I want you to see in verse number one exactly what the Bible says. That I may show him kindness for, say the next two words there, Jonathan's sake. He wasn't doing it to show Mephibosheth kindness. He was doing it because of Jonathan. Did you know that four different times in the word of God, the Bible uses this term, and by the way, This term is one of the most vulgar terms used in modern day English language and it's such a shame because it really has a great meaning. But four different times in the New Testament, this phrase is used for Christ's sake. Now, people use that so improperly and boy, that's about as maddening of a thing when people say that about trivial matters in life. But But the Bible really says it with with great meaning. The Bible says, And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God hath forgiven you for Christ's sake. You know the reason that God showed you mercy and kindness and grace? For Christ's sake. You know, the Bible then instructs us that we should uh, uh, live the Christian life, not because it's convenient, not because it's easy, but for the sake of our Savior. The Bible says in Romans chapter 15, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So we strive and we serve, not because it's easy, not because it's convenient, Not because it's the right thing to do. 
we serve the Lord with gladness for Christ's sake. We don't do it because the world says to do it. We don't do it because our church friends say to do it. We do it because there is a higher call in the Christian life. We do it because Christ is worthy of our devotion. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says, Therefore I take pleasure in my infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake. Man, one of the hardest times to counsel someone is when they're really going through it. I'd ask you to keep in mind the Burge family this morning as they're literally on their way to Mississippi right now. Several weeks ago, Josh's dad had a car accident. And it was told to us today that, that pretty much the doctors have told them that he's going to pass away shortly. They're on their way down there. We've been praying for him. And one of the hardest times to counsel someone in their life is when tragedy has hit their life. And, and you say, you know, we're praying for you. We love you. And I was having this conversation with a friend yesterday. Those things are easy to say when it's not your problem directly, right? Keep them in your prayers. But let me say this. When we go through these very difficult things in life, we ought to understand we're not doing it for us. And we ought not keep our faith and keep our testimony for us or for others around us. The Bible says we can take pleasures and distresses and reproaches, not for someone else to take note of them, but for the sake of... Of Christ, we are able to do that. That's why the Bible continues to say, For when I am weak, then am I strong. We do it for Christ's sake. This was not an easy decision for David to make. I mean, he could have just as easily said, I ah, don't worry about it, it's not that big a deal. But he took in Mephibosheth for the love that he had for Jonathan. The reason we serve, the reason we love, the reason we give here at Joshua Baptist Church is not so that others may look at our church and say, wow, what a beautiful building, or man, they sure have a lot of people that go there. The reason we do what we do is because we love our Savior. For the love of Christ constraineth us. That's what the Bible teaches. So there is an inquiry. There is an intention. And I want you to see thirdly the invitation that is given. The clock up there says 1154, quite brilliantly, I might add. It's about as big as possible as you can see. So we got a few more minutes to go, but there is an invitation given to Mephibosheth. Number one, I want you to see a special reception. Verse number six, the Bible says, Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come to David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold thy servant, notice this, And David said unto him, Fear not. Most people believe Mephibosheth is about 21 years old at the time of this meeting. From the time of five years of age till now, he's been in hiding from from David. Could you imagine being in the household the day when Mephibosheth gets the summons that King David wants to meet with him? Probably in his mind he's thinking, How did he find me? And certainly in the back of his mind, as he approaches the palace that David is going to meet him in, he is not thinking that this meeting is going to be one of kind reception. He's probably terrified for his life. You say, how do you know that, Brother Andrew? Because even David sensed it. What is his first words to Jonathan? Fear not. It's amazing to me that the king with every right to kill Mephibosheth chooses instead of killing him or instead of judging him, he extends to him kindness. I'll never get over the fact that in the plan of salvation we deliver some of the worst news ever. It's kind of hard, you know, you take the Bible and, and you go to somebody and you'll say, hey, Brother Curtis, do you know that you're a sinner? I mean, you're the worst of the worst. I mean, you are rotten to the core. You know, that's the Bible says in Psalm chapter 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. I mean, we are rotten through and through. That's kind of a hard thing to tell someone. Did you know that 
And then we kind of go from, hey, Brother John, you're, you're a just rotten sinner. And then we say, hey, by the way, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Not only are you a sinner, but you're on your way to hell. Well, talk about a downer story. And they're thinking the gospel is supposed to be good news, you know. And we do. We start out very, very terrible. And there's a moment if you've ever been able to uh, have the privilege to, to lead someone to the Lord, there's a moment when that guilt and the realization of impending judgment upon them hits them. And most of the time it's at this moment where this, the attitude and the, the, just the sense of the whole thing takes a turn. Because before we were reading verses like, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But now we're delivering some very hard news. And at that moment, I love being able to say this. But, God commendeth His love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us for yet when we were without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly when a sinner comes to the realization of impending condemnation they look at God and they say with a sense of awe and a sense of of guilt they look at him and they they expect to be met with judgment and yet he gives them kindness He gives them grace. You see, there is a special reception given to Mephibosheth, and there's a special reception given to every sinner that's ever come to the throne of grace. I want you to see, secondly, not only is there a special reception, there is a special place extended to Mephibosheth. Verse number 7, the Bible says, And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake. And restore restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. And notice this. And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. You'll notice in verse number 9 the Bible says. I have given unto thy master. uh, uh, Verse number 9. Then the king uh, called to Ziba Saul's servant said unto him. I have given unto thy master's son all that pertained to Saul and to all his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants' sons uh, shall till the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Notice in verse number 9. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat bread, or he shall eat at my table. Notice in verse number 13. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table. It was not just that kindness would be showed to Mephibosheth, but it was that a place was now reserved for him in the king's palace. It was his table. It was his spot to sit. In this day and age, the feast that you were called to and the chairs that you would hold meant a great deal for your social standing in the hierarchy of the day. And sitting at the king's table would have been the greatest privilege of them all. It was a few months ago, I guess uh, in April, that uh, probably one of the most awkward things in my entire life happened to me. Me and some of the staff members went to West Coast Baptist College, uh, Lancaster Baptist Church. They had a spiritual leadership conference. It's this very large conference and preacher meeting where they'll probably have, I don't know, 6,000 preachers there. And, and there's so, this huge auditorium so full, they're putting out folding chairs. And, and we went to this meeting. And at the uh, deal each year, they have an alumni luncheon. And so you, you register for it. I happened to graduate from West Coast Baptist College. And so I checked the box and I was going to go to the luncheon. Brother John Scahill, one of our staff members, went with us. And he's also alumni. And so he was going to go with me. And so I was trying to coordinate. John went to a different session that morning and I went to another session. So I'm trying to call him and say, John, are you going to be at the luncheon? He's like, yeah, I'm going to be there. Just go get us some seats. 
So I walk into this big room with all these round tables at it. And right up front is the serving line. And at the very far end of the room is the the platform that I know they're going to speak from. So what everybody else was doing was they were going in and getting right by the food, you know, because they were unspiritual and stuff. But I said to myself, I can walk to get my food. I want to be kind of close to hear what's going on and see what's going on. And so I walk to the far end of the room and I sit down at this table and I call John and I'm like, John, I feel like it's my freshman year again and I have no one to sit with. John, get here now. I need you to be with you. Because there's nothing more awkward than just walking into a giant room where everybody else is talking. You go sit down by yourself. And so I'm like, John, get here now. I'm texting him like, hurry, hurry. hurry. You know, I'm, I want him there. He's like, I'm on my way. And I'll never forget what happened next. I'm sitting at this table by myself. And uh, Pastor Chapel, who's the pastor of Lancaster Baptist Church, he walks into the room. And he's right there by me. And he says, Brother Wolfenbarger. And I'm like, yes, sir. Why don't you come sit with me? (laughs) You got to understand, I was never the class pet. (laughs) And if anybody ever called me anything brown, especially brown noser, I was out on that. And so now, how odd is it going to look that I, just, just a normal graduate from the college, am sitting with the president of the college and the pastor of this giant church? I'm... I'm thinking to myself, man, people are going to look at me saying, man, what a suck up. I'm worried about it. And so I'm like, oh, uh, okay, yes, sir. And so I get up and I go sit over there. And John arrives right after all this went down. And he kind of comes and hovers over me. And there's a seat right beside me. And I see him just kind of go, Nah. And he just leaves me. And so now it's me and Pastor Chapel and uh, a, a man by the name of Todd Starnes. He writes columns for Fox News. If you, if you are, watch Fox News or read anything on Fox News, you might have heard of him before. He, he comes from a Christian background. He's very conservative. And so now Todd Starnes, this famous conservative writer, is sitting at this table with me and Pastor Chapel. And I'm like... What am I doing here? Then I'm sitting there just a little bit longer, and here comes Dr. Don Sisk. Dr. Sisk was on the mission field for, man, I don't even know how long, something like 40 years. He was a missionary in Japan. He started what is still today the largest uh, church, the largest Baptist church in uh, Japan. He started that church. He goes around and preaches at all these conferences. I mean, I mean, and now I'm sitting at a table with Don Sisk. I mean, he has books written about him. With Don Sisk, Pastor Chapel, Todd Starnes. And I'm thinking, oh, this is awkward. What am I doing here? A little bit later, a man by the name of Tim Wilkerson comes up. Now, Tim Wilkerson pastors now the First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana. It's, uh, you may have heard of Hiles Anderson College. He's the president of that college. Lancaster Baptist Church and uh, uh, First Baptist of Hammond, Indiana might be the two largest independent fundamental Baptist churches in the entire nation. And now I'm sitting there with these pastors and I'm thinking, yeah, my youth department's kind of good. <laughs> you know, I'm, what am I doing here? And then coming up, sits right down beside me, uh, uh, Tim Wilkerson sits beside me. And then comes up a man by the name of Mike Norris. He's the pastor of uh, a Franklin Road Baptist Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. It's, in my opinion, one of the best independent Baptist churches in the South. I mean, they are in Tennessee. They're in the Bible Belt. And it is a fantastic church. I mean, Jamie grew up there, but don't, don't judge the church by Jamie, you know. But... but it's a wonderful church. Uh, they have about, they probably have 2,000 people there this morning uh, in Sunday morning service. So, okay, I'm sitting at a table with a man who pastors a church of over 8,000. A man by the name, uh, a man who churches a past, uh, uh, pastors a church of over 5,000. Another man who pastors a church in the deep south, 2,000. And then a man that started the largest independent Baptist church in Japan. And I'm thinking, What? 
am I doing here? And everybody's looking at me all weird. Like, you know, because you got Todd Starnes there too. They're thinking, is this redhead some kind of like guest of honor? They were probably thinking, oh, he's the Mephibosheth. I'll never forget how weird it was to sit at that table, but I'll also never forget of what an honor it was. I mean, I got to talk to these men and kind of pick their brains. I mean, I got to sit at the president's table. Every single night, Mephibosheth received a greater honor than I could ever imagine as King David and he sat down and had supper together at the king's table. My friend, there's a place so much greater than the king's table that you can have this morning. The Bible tells us, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open, I will come unto him and I will sup with him and he with me. In other words, Jesus extends an invitation to sit at his table anytime you want. And the place that is reserved for you is far greater than any supper table. It's a home in heaven. You can have that this morning. It's not based upon what you've done or what you can bring to the table. It is based upon what Jesus did on the cross at Calvary when he said, it is finished. It meant I've done everything necessary. All you need to do is accept my gift to you. There's a special reception in a special place. I want you to see thirdly a special title and we're done. Notice in verse number 13, and try to imagine... What this must have meant, or verse number 11, what this word must have meant to Mephibosheth. Then said Ziba unto the king, according to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. At five years old, he lost his father. He, he did not grow up with a dad. His primary caregivers would have been nurses. And now the king who is supposed to kill him, the king who is supposed to just eliminate him as a potential threat to the throne, that king looks at him and says, not only do you have a place at my table, but I'm going to treat you as one of my very own sons. And uh, Saul's long gone off the scene and Jonathan was never king, but, but technically Mephibosheth was one of the king's sons. I bet his life up until this point hadn't felt very prince-like. Taken care of every single day, hiding out in a city in the middle of nowhere, literally entitled and called Nothing. And now the king looks at him and extends the deepest mercy and grace possible and says, you will be as one of my sons. This morning, not only does God offer you a home in heaven, but God offers you to be part of his family. The Bible says, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. I was privileged to grow up in an awesome home and I wouldn't change anything about it, but we are not a royal family. I think my last name, Wolfenbarger, although very hard to pronounce and sounds a bit like a menu at uh, a menu item at a burger joint, uh, I think my name does have some royal blood in it. In fact, uh, Wolfenbarger means son of the wolf. So, and and I've said this before, but my first name, Andrew, means strong and manly. I know you sound surprised. That sounds surprising. And it's kind of like, you know, calling a bald guy curly, I guess. But, but, so my name literally means the strong and manly son of the wolf. And I do think that there's some royal blood somewhere. If not, I'm just going to believe it. I'm not going to do the ancestry thing either because they're going to have my DNA and sell it or something. I don't know. But again, just send me the money. I'll tell you. But whether or not I have any royal blood in my veins, I am a son of God. And no person 
No act, no, no, no disobedience can ever take that away from me. I am a child of the King. I mentioned earlier the story of Christmas Carol. Tiny Tim does not have a big part in the book, but he does have the last part in the book. It's kind of unique uh, as uh, the story kind of ends on a happy note, and that's the stories I like. I don't like leaving where I'm sad. I like this story where Scrooge gets everything fixed. He realizes that uh, his his uh, uh, tendencies of greed and, and just just evil uh, way of looking at the world. He kind of changes all that and he's much more generous and he kind of takes Tiny Tim under his wing and he, he gives out turkeys to everybody. I mean, he's just, he's become a totally different man. And at the end of the book, Tiny Tim is heard saying these words, God bless us, everyone. This morning... God extends to each and every person in this room the greatest blessing that could ever be given. And it's not more money. It's not a promotion. It's not people to like you. The greatest blessing that could ever be given was the day when He sent His Son in a manger. When God took upon Himself the form of a servant and wrapped Himself in flesh and and was born in Bethlehem's manger only to one day hang upon a cross for you. That's the greatest blessing that could ever be given. God has truly blessed us, everyone. And God's heart this morning is if there's a tiny Tim in this room, someone who realizes that they are a sinner in a lost and dying world and they are going to hell this morning. If there's someone like that, God's heart would be that you'd come in and become part of his family. God's heart is that you would sit at his table and always have a place for you to rest your feet. That's God's heart this morning. I think we can all sympathize with tiny Tim, but I can empathize with Mephibosheth. She's sympathizing. You feel bad for a situation. You can't really feel it. Empathy is actually knowing what he's going through. I was a crippled man, unable to help myself get to heaven. You ever heard the song, Oh, you can't get to heaven in a rocking chair. There was nothing I could do to get there myself. And one day the king asked this question, Is there a son of Adam that I can just display kindness on? And when I was 12 years old at a youth camp, I went to a back room and I bowed my knee and I just simply said a prayer like this, Dear Lord, I confess that I'm a sinner. And I know that I need to be saved. Come into my heart and save my soul and take me to heaven when I die. And that day the Lord extended the greatest kindness that he could ever do when he saved my soul from hell and gave me a place at his table. Maybe this morning there's some Mephibosheth in the room. Maybe there's a tiny Tim who needs some kindness from God. Don't wait. Don't delay. Don't go back to the land of nothing. Sit at the king's table.